Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke, as we, we kind of, as we get into Luke, you kind of want to know where the book was. So chapter 1 and 2 is John the Baptist and Jesus getting born. Chapter 3 was the baptism, the genealogy, the temptation. Chapter 4 was all these like stories of people derailing or trying to derail the ministry of Jesus. And he stays on track. Chapter 5, he calls the disciples to help. Chapter 6, we get the sermon that Luke provides us, the Sermon of the Plain. And it is the way to walk in Jesus. And you get this through words, you get the teachings of Jesus in chapter 6. Verse 1 of our chapter kind of ends that section. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, which is kind of his base of operations. Um, So he's concluded this teaching that is the way to live. And then what we're going to get in chapter seven is four stories that are like at manifestations of what he taught. And he's showing us through these stories that it wasn't just words that Jesus taught. So blessed are those who mourn. We're going to see somebody who mourns. Blessed are those that weep. We're going to see people that are weeping. And we're going to see the, the lived experience of what Jesus taught so that we don't confuse or twist what he said in that teaching. We're going to see examples of it. This is how to live like he was saying to live. And so these stories kind of have that summative effect. Each one has great stuff we can learn. But the shift in location back to Capernaum, it's likely he's staying with friends and family in Capernaum. It's likely he's he's housing up. Um, and and he people know where to find him because he's got like a headquarters. Like he's staying with Peter, he's... Um, staying with his parents, uh, you know, or wherever. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him um, was sick and ready to die. So him there is the, the centurion, not Jesus. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that that one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So this is a good guy, a a Roman soldier, uh, a decent person. Um, The phrase there, was dear to him, is much more than just like he was a good slave, good worker. He was dear to him. In fact, the, the phrase there is usually used for relatives. And this Roman soldier has a servant that he's absolutely, uh, you know, he loves and cares for it. Typically in Roman society, when a slave was unable to work, you just kill them and you buy another. Slaves were cheap in the Roman empire. And when they couldn't do what they were paid, what they were hired to do, they just were, they were almost inhuman and they were treated that way. So this idea that he has a slave that was dear to him, he sends the elders, the Jewish ambassadors to make this request of this Jewish teacher that everybody knows is healing people. And the centurion recognizes the power. Verse 6 makes it seem like he's actually on hand, like he's nearby. But he's not going in there and doing that in part because, and I think it's hard in our culture to understand, the, the rift between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. If a Jewish person came into a Gentile's house, they had to do all sorts of human purification rituals. 
It was a major chore for a Jewish person to walk into a Gentile's house. And Gentiles were simply not allowed in Jewish people's houses. They were unclean. And so you have this religious practice of unclean, which you see in some religions, and it's evil. It's absolutely horrible to say this human's clean and this human's not, and it has nothing to do with their heart. It has to do with how they, it's things they can't control, right? If, if I'm unclean physically, I can take a bath. I can actually control that. But they were unclean because of who they were and, and nothing else. So this centurion understands these things. So by sending, you think it's weird that he would, he's an authority, he's a Roman. Why wouldn't he just storm in and do it? Because he has some respect for the Jews. And they're pleading for him. They're begging, please help this guy. He's actually a really good guy. And understanding the Roman military, there are 25 legions. Those legions were broken down into groups of 1,000. Those groups of 1,000 were broken down to where there were leaders over every 100 men. Centurions, where we get the word century. So the, these centurions, whenever we see them in the Bible, they're pretty amazing human beings. So they're not, they know how to take orders and they know how to give orders. They understand that relationship is absolute. In the Roman military, if you defy a command, you're killed. Romans easily killed people. They did not respect life like we do. And if you were unpleasing to your authority, you were not elevated through the ranks. So anybody to move up through the ranks to be ahead of 100 people and to control a town, so to speak, they were well regarded by the Romans. Centurions weren't necessarily family promotions. Right? So if you're the Caesar and you have an extended family, those people are generals. Right? Centurions were people like we'd call sergeants. They were people that were, that were well respected among the men because they're the ones that had to deal with the men. So they knew how to lead. They knew how to follow. They knew, how to, they knew the absolutes of that situation. And he comes into it with that understanding. In verse 6, Jesus went to them and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. So first he sends the Jews, now he sends friends. Two different groups saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. What does he mean don't trouble yourself? Jesus is already walking. But the trouble is all of the, the Gentile or the, the centurion understanding all these rituals that Jesus would have to do. And he's trying to save Jesus that trouble. Like, you don't need to go through all that trouble. For I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Blessed are the poorest spirit. Here's a guy who has a high worldly position, but a low opinion spiritually of himself. I'm not worthy of this. So think of just the poorest spirit. They're going to inherit the kingdom of God. These are the people that have faith. No matter what their earthly position is, they respect the fact that they're lower down in this and they're a servant. Therefore, verse 7 I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I know what it's like to be under authority. I know what it's like to have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turn around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. It just, bam. When Jesus goes, he doesn't hesitate to go to the Gentile. He hears this request and he gets up and he actually goes. The soldier's close by. He's got a second group of people ready to interrupt this hike across town. So he's not, he's not staying away out of fear. He's a centurion. He's staying out of, out of the way because of respect. 
And that there's a blessing in that. It's because he's poor in spirit that Jesus is willing to come to him. It's the arrogant that Jesus pushes away consistently in every single interaction. It's the humble that Jesus goes towards. It's the arrogant that he pushes away. So he's, he says he should, he should do this was deserving. The soldier respects that he's not there. And the soldier even has this elevated opinion of his servant. Like, this is for a really good person, but I'm not that good person. I'm a centurion. So surely Jesus justifies coming to him, but it's really odd to see Jesus coming to us. There's no justification for that other than grace. Why would the God of the universe come our direction for anything when we're the ones that have fallen away? Faithful people often have a truer sense of what humility is because they put whatever they're faithful to above themselves, making them faithful. Humble people are more ready to have faith in other people. Because we're humble, we trust others to do things. And then you get let down a few times, but that's a, side, that's a different point. The, the faithful and the gentle go hand in hand in this story. They're both faithful and they're humble. Moreover, the Gentile knows Jewish traditions about not entering homes, and you got this authority situation. A striking thing to say that a centurion recognizes the authority of a non-Pharisee teacher that's running around in the Galilean area, a carpenter's son. But the, he understands the spiritual command. You get the sense the centurion has maybe been overseeing some of these gatherings that are getting contentious, like they have a responsibility to keep the peace. The centurion has likely heard Jesus. He's taught all over the region, according to Luke. He's been heard by all the people, according to Luke. And what the centurion sees when he sees Jesus is somebody who casts a demon out and the demon leaves instantly. He casts the sickness and the fever out. It's gone. And, the, and what he recognizes isn't an earthly command of Jesus Christ in any way. What he recognizes is absolute power and authority. And Luke's made that comment too. He's taught with authority. And the centurion sees it and recognizes it because he knows it. But say the word. He understands that the power of Jesus is the word of Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word is Jesus. By God's word, everything happens. And this is the thing I think that gets, that it amazes Jesus. There's very few times when Jesus is marveled at anything. And this is one of them. It's a really rare instant. Part of what he's marveling at is just this amazing trust that is shown by this guy, but also the recognition of total and, and, and absolute authority. If we recognize the authority of Jesus, we have there is a faith that comes with that. So verse 8 is an explanation of how he understands Jesus' power. He recognizes authority. Um, verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Simple and direct understanding is what Jesus is marveling at. And I think as we've got the Gospels, we're past resurrection. It is this simple and direct understanding Jesus is absolutely in control. And even though he's weeping and he's, he's tore apart about his servant being sick, he knows the solution is Jesus. And when he asks for the solution, he has faith in the solution. That makes God marvel. God made us. He knows how difficult this is for a human being to just put their trust in the Lord for all things. It's so difficult. Not even in Israel. Okay, side point, not the typical teaching point on this, but when Jesus says not even in Israel... 
Israel, we should note, is not a nation at this point. It's Judea. It's a region of Rome. But he's talking about Israel like it's actually a nation, right? And so at some level, and, um, and Matthew 8.11 records that the specific teaching here is in front of many people, um, and that, that, that there is this idea that a simple, gentle faith is being shown even in Israel. This would anger both the Jewish people who think they're spiritually above the Romans, but it would also perhaps be a poke at the Romans who do not acknowledge that Israel exists, right? So it's, again, Jesus keeps adding this line at the end of each of his things where he wisely does it, but then he does one thing further to just push people in spiritual areas. In Israel, we have a word that's getting used there that most Romans would probably react to, especially Romans in authority. This guy, you could read right over that and not even tune into it because there's so little reaction. So he goes home, he finds the servant well. Um, the other piece here is the Roman centurion asked for Jesus' word, just say it and it'll be done. Notice in the story, Jesus doesn't actually say it, at least the recording we have. In fact, Jesus goes one step further. I don't even have to speak it. I can just will it and it happens. Amazing. So the centurion shows faith that, make, faith that makes God marvel. But with Luke, we've seen this progression of where somebody touched him. Somebody asks for something. He speaks a word. Your sins are forgiven. But at this point, not a word is even spoken. It's simply the will of Jesus that makes that servant well back at home. All we have to do is ask for it. Luke's point, I think Luke's point as an author, there's simply no limits to the power of Jesus. And even in a discussion around authority, there's no incantations, there's no fancy touch, there's no little dance that somebody has to do. You don't have to turn around three times and bow on a, on a rug and do all this nonsense. Not even the word in this story, simply the will of God being done. And God's willing this thing to happen. So the next story expands on that power a step further. One more thing. Luke gives you another story. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. Nain's just a farm town in the Jezreel Valley. Uh, we would look right over it. Uh, most people might not even have known the name of the town. It's that small. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city with, was with her. The large there in, in the Greek, like Luke's trying to let us know, like the whole city's mourning over this. is tragic. The, the reason is, in this society, a woman would be taken into a, a man's home. If she loses her husband, her family may not take her back, especially if they've aged. And then to have a son die too means both her current security is at risk but the son is to take care of his mother in her old age. Her future security, she just lost her 401k plan. The whole son, the whole town's coming out. This is tragic. So Jesus just taught in the last chapter, blessed are those that mourn. And now we're seeing somebody who's mourning. And what is God going to do about it? A large crowd was with her. When the Lord, verse 13, saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Do not weep. And then he came and he touched the open coffin. Luke's really emphasizing dead person, coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. 
So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. And the fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Again, the use of Judea here, again with that point from the last story, Luke knows that the region's called Judea. And so when he's saying Israel in that other piece, like it's, it's, it's a unique thing to use that word. The fact that there's a double tragedy here and we see somebody deep in mourning, but the reaction of God, don't miss it, he's compassionate on that. Death isn't what God made in the garden. It wasn't the intention. It was the necessary conclusion of sin. If humans are going to go into a life of sin, there will be a cutoff point where they can do that. There will be an end to it. And God sets an end point to all human lives because at the end of the day, all humans sin. And so until that gets resolved, there will be a death that happens. But that's not God's plan. It's not what he wants. When we say goodbye to our friends and our family, God has compassion on us when that happens. When that hole starts to well up, two, three years later, you remember that person and it still hurts, still painful. God knows that feeling and he knows that that's part of the curse. It's not what's meant to be. So when the compassion is part of the reaction, the other reaction is, when young man, I say to you, arise. The only place we can go in the face of death is Jesus. And blessed are those that mourn because it's the mourning itself that brings us close to Jesus. It helps a lot of people go to funerals and give their lives to the Lord because you start to think about the existence of life and death at a funeral. Blessed are those who are humble because when we're humble, God can approach us and teach us. One of the three people that Jesus raises in the Bible, there's Jairus' daughter, there's Lazarus, and there's this situation, the widow's son. And we see that when Jesus shows up at funerals in the Gospels, the funeral's over. And I kind of like that idea. When Jesus shows up, the funeral's over because he doesn't do death. And with the power of God in him, he does the same thing for his own funeral. It just takes him three days because he's got some people to preach to. When the Lord saw Luke starts to use this now, he makes his case. There's a resuscitating effect that happens when God sees this happening amongst humanity. So again, this isn't, I should say, Resurrection is the wrong word because resurrection is unto eternal life. These people are resuscitated. They, they then go on to die. So they're resuscitated, but they're not resurrected. So he makes his case. The gospel shifts on this from making the argument that Jesus has total authority, power, dominion, genealogy, um, credentials. And from here on out in the book of Luke, we're going to see that we're going to start looking at other people's reactions to Jesus unto the cross. So healing without a word and raising the dead, these first two stories, Luke is building these reactions that people have. And then we get the messengers of John the Baptist. So for the writer, for Luke, he's made his case. But now let's see how people deal with this Jesus and what, what they're going to do with it. And then you get a third story here too. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John calling two of his disciples to him, and then to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent you to us, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? With John in jail, um, 
there would be some people, when you go into a Roman jail, they don't feed you. So if you starve to death and you die, it means nobody loves you and who cares? I mean, that was the Roman attitude. So again, we're talking about a lot of Roman, like not caring about life. But if you didn't have family to bring you food in a jail cell, the Romans weren't going to spend one penny on a president. That was it. You just starved to death in that cell. So John the Baptist has some people that actually love him as a friend. They're taking care of him. That's one way to look at his followers. We know at this point in the ministry, John the Baptist has instructed his disciples to go follow Jesus so that he might increase and I might decrease. So there's a couple ways to look at this. These are disciples still following John because they don't believe in Jesus. That could be part of it. These are also perhaps disciples still following John because he's in a jail cell and they love this guy and he's a brother. And their ministry is to just take care of him. And so depending on how you kind of read that, there's different ways to read that. But John the Baptist has sent us to you. So John was a cousin of Jesus. They grew up together. He saw heaven opened above Jesus at the baptism. Mark, uh, Matthew 3.14, um, John says, forbade Jesus saying, I have the need to be baptized of you and you come to me? Like John didn't even want to baptize Jesus. So it's really interesting that he's in a jail cell and he's asking this question. He clearly believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's taught Jesus is the Messiah. He's seen that Jesus is Messiah. He even heard a voice from heaven saying Jesus is Messiah. So some call this a lapse of faith. That's one way to read this story. That simply is like, it's not a, you can read it that way. The question is, if you're reading it straightforward and literal, are you the coming one or do we look for another? That's a doubt. Are you the Messiah or not? And that's the question here. Um, it seems inconsistent with a John the Baptist that says this, John 3, 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, well, he goes on to say, he's the Christ. He's the bridegroom. And then in verse 30 of John 3, it says, he must increase, I must decrease. This is that guy. So how did he go from that to wondering if Jesus was the Messiah? And so there's, if, if, if he knows Jesus is from above and he says that, um, and he actually wants Jesus to take the spotlight, he sees that as his job. Psychologically, what's happened to John that he's sending disciples asking this question? So it could be prison messes with your head. <laughs> like, like you're feeling like... Jesus should be this military conqueror and he's supposed to free the prisoners. And John's like, I'm a prisoner and it's not looking good and things aren't going well. So it could be that, admittedly. It could be that John's done his job and he's wondering if Jesus is going to go out of his way where he's healing all these people and doing all these great things. Like, hey, did you forget about your cousin over here? Could be that John, it may be, is indeed having a lapse of faith and legitimately people read this that way. Um, I'll make a third suggestion. Another way to, read, way to read this is that John's disciples are questioning Jesus as they did in John chapter 3. It was John's disciples that were disputing and arguing, and John actually corrects them in John chapter 3. So he's still got these disciples that aren't, frankly, supposed to be following him anymore. They're not listening to John's teaching if they're still calling themselves John's disciples. John chapter 3, I want to read this. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, 
and no one receives his testimony. John 3, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. According to John, John the Baptist has told them that Jesus is the Son of God. And so at that point in John 3, they were doubting that Jesus was the Son of God. And at this point in Luke chapter 7, they're doubting that Jesus is the Son of God. Very consistent group of disciples with they're not quite ready to do this. But they're fully aware of what John did teach and what he didn't teach. So again, this isn't a faith breaker, whether or not John was in doubt or if his disciples were using his name because he's not there to challenge it. And... Um, and anyways, just an idea of consistency of like the character of John as we read in the Gospels. And there's people that see this lapse of faith as a, a reason we too should question Jesus. But I don't think that's what the author's intent was here at all. The reality is you have some people walking in and they, they're doubting if Christ is the Messiah. And we want to look at that answer. Um, verse 21, And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. So Luke points out that they'd just seen and heard everything they needed to see and hear. Exactly what John had taught them back in John chapter 3. It's the things you see and hear that you need to pay attention to. So perhaps they're trying to push Jesus to take up the call of a more military-like proclamation of Messiah or to move pre prematurely. Perhaps they're trying to push Jesus to free John the Baptist from jail. You know, and, and again, he just did a favor for a centurion over here. We know that Jesus can free people from jail. We see Paul and Silas get freed from a jail. We see Peter get unlocked from a jail cell. God can do it with his will. So there's this amazing exercise of power in the last two stories and a restraint of power in this story. What do we do with that? Either way, they're coming to Jesus with an agenda. And, and in verse 21, I think what Luke's trying to point out is their agenda when they come to Jesus blinds them to everything that's happening around them. They just don't see it. And the teaching we're going to get afterwards fits that thought, that they come walking in, these disciples of John, and they want something out of Jesus that they're not getting. And in that, they can't have faith. Centurion has total faith. The widow, no discussion of her faith whatsoever. Just God has compassion on her and he blesses her. But this, these people come to Jesus and they got an agenda. They got this thing they want from Jesus. Prove yourself. It's the same thing Satan asked Jesus to do in the wilderness. Prove yourself to me. Verse 22, Jesus answered and he said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. And it's funny because I just, that John 3 passage... It, and what has been seen and heard, Jesus uses John's words back at them, which is a nice approach to deal with John's disciples. Tell them the things you've seen and heard, that the blind see, Isaiah 61, the lame walk, Isaiah 35, the lepers are cleansed, Leviticus 13, the deaf hear, Isaiah 35, the dead are raised, Isaiah 26, the poor have the gospel preached to them, Isaiah 61. All Jesus does like, and sometimes you, you expect him to give like a only God can give biblical tour de force of Bible study. And he holds back from that or he paraphrases or he changes words and adds things. Here, word for word, he's giving that tour de force Bible study back at John's disciples. When they, when they come to him with doubt, he comes back to them with the word of God. 
and John's words with the phrase seen and heard. Go tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Boom, 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 boom. What more do you need? That's the response to people that come with an agenda. What are you looking for? Everything that the Messiah is supposed to be doing is stuff you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears. It's all happening. And yet you can't see it because you're not getting what you want. This is such a tragic story in that sense. Everything we read in Luke has been setting this story up. If you think about it, all those things in Luke 22 are things we've already read about and Luke has given account of in these stories so that we too can be in that situation. We've seen everything Luke has shared with us. And yet, is that not enough? What more do you need to see? And remember, Luke has multiple times said he did it in front of everybody. All the public saw it. The whole group saw it. All of it. So even 2,000 years later, part of what Luke is saying is this is absolutely a documented piece of history. Everyone testified to this. The whole town witnessed this happening. Yet we today arrogantly say, yeah, but what has Jesus done for me lately? What more do I need to see from him to put full and total trust in him? Trust that looks like that centurion we just saw. Again, Jesus doesn't ask for blind faith. He never has in the book of Luke. He asks for them to look and to listen. See it. Don't come in with your agenda. Just what do you see? And does it look like what the Bible says it should look like or not? Thousands of humbles of acts of service, help, helpless people being helped, power being administered, service from Jesus to anyone who comes to him with a need, helping, forgiving, that's what we've seen, though we haven't seen a military conquest. And so Jesus is challenging them with the word of God, with his response. Verse 23, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When you come with your own agenda, the, the natural human reaction is offense. And, and Jesus is like, Man, blessed are people that just see the work of God and they're not offended by it. They're not upset. The work that we saw with Jesus on the Sabbath, actually we had the three Sabbath stories, the, the pharisaical reaction was offense at Jesus. They saw him working and they were just upset with him. They didn't like what they saw because it wasn't what they wanted to see. Winning hearts, not winning elections, raising the dead, not raising money, training disciples, not soldiers. That's what you see with Jesus. So you have this attitude, this very human attitude, very common attitude. Gee, why don't you do more? Why don't you go bigger? Why don't you push harder? Because we should know, we've been told, his mission was to teach and heal and bring salvation to the lost. He's doing what he was called to do by his Father in heaven. Here's how Dave Gusick says it. I, I can't say this any better. For the most part, the way of the Lord's service is the way of plotting perseverance in the doing of apparently small things. The history of the church shows this is one of the lessons that's most difficult to learn by the church. Because we humans want to go bigger. Or the opposite's true. We humans, it's not enough. Right? And, and that's just our heart. So blessed are those who are not offended at plotting like perseverance we're just going to do what we've been called to do the word offended there is we've seen this before is scandalizo it's the root word for scandal blessed are those who don't see this as a scandal 
it's just the love of God. And, and literally the word scandal comes from the root word of a stumbling block or a trap. Blessed are those who don't get tr- hung up on this. Don't get trapped by it. Or blessed are those who don't set this off as a trap. <clears throat> to be upset about the scandal, you are trapped by the scandal. And you can't bow to the king when you're worried about what you want and what the scandal is. You just can't. These Again, how do you walk in? And Luke's saying they see all this stuff within the same hour. They saw everything and they just missed the point. And to be blessed. Blessed is a statement here. It's not a hope or a prayer. There is a blessing in not being scandalized and not being offended. There's a huge blessing. And again, he doesn't say you are blessed. He said blessed are those who are not offended. When there is drama or when there is a desire or when people want things they shouldn't have, when we embrace that drama, we're caught up in it. We're scandalized by it. And this happens with the news. It happens with other people's troubles. It happens anytime there's sin or any time there's a mismatch of expectation with what we think other people should be doing. And then we can be caught up in that and it destroys our ability to see Jesus and come to Jesus. The centurion has total faith. Jesus comes to him. The widow is so in mourning and so lost, she doesn't even call out, but Jesus comes to her. These people come to Jesus. See the motion that Luke's setting up there? And they come to Jesus and they can't meet with him because they got so much of themselves. Verse 24, when the messengers of John departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. In other words, they're walking away and he starts talking in loud voice. I'm thinking they can still hear this. Next part. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is, he's going to build up John here in a second. I think this is great. There's a whole crowd. When you get these people and they set these expectations, why aren't, are you the coming one or not? And Jesus having to answer that question is a total insult based on what he, the answer he just gave. Like I don't, he doesn't owe these people an example. He just said, look around, see and hear. And that seeing comes back in these verses. Because he told them, see and listen. And now he's saying, what did you see? What did you go out to see? What, were, what was your intention in what you wanted to go see out there? What was in your heart and what, what were you looking for? These are all rhetorical questions, right? The idea of a reed shaken by the wind is an image that comes from the prophet Ahijah. He went to Jeroboam and he said this in 1 Kings 15, For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed shaken, by the, shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from his good land, which he gave to their fathers, and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. See why he uses that, that phrase? It's the only other place you find the phrase in the Bible. What did you go out to see with John? Did you go out to see a guy that would shake everything up? That he would bring God's righteous anger to Rome and destroy them and wipe them off the map? Is that what you're hoping for? Is that what you're looking for? And honestly, we come to church, we come to the kingdom, and the same kinds of questions can be asked to me, and this is convicting. What did you come to church for? What were you looking for? And this is a trap question. This is a scandalized question, right? 
If you came to church looking for something, you're probably missing the point. If you came to church to honor God and bring your service to the kingdom, you're probably a lot closer to humility and faithfulness. If you came to church because you're just broken, you need to get filled back up. It's been too long since you've studied the word. It's been too long since you've worshiped with Grant. You need that recharge. Then you're more like the widow. If you come because you just honor God as total authority and he owns you, you're more like the centurion and both of them are blessed. It's great ways to come to church. But if you come like these guys and you're looking for a revolution because you saw the movie, maybe that's you're coming more like John the Baptist's people, you know? And I'm just saying that as a brother. Maybe that's the wrong way to approach what you're doing when you come to worship God. Notice that the disciples uh, of John the Baptist do not bow to Jesus. They do not worship Jesus. They do not glorify God. All they bring is their own self-indignation. And they walk away empty. And this reaction to Jesus is absolutely heartrending. And when you read that and you know in your own heart that we all struggle with that, and you identify those parts of your hearts where you too have been like that when it comes to God, repent of it. God, I'm so sorry. These disciples could turn around, fall at the feet of Jesus, wash his feet with their hair, and, and anoint his feet as king in their life, and God would have mercy on them. But they can't do it because they came expecting something. It's really tough. Rome's totally corrupt. The Sanhedrin are totally corrupt. The entire system is broke, and it is rational to think, God, we want you to just wipe this all out. So a reed moves and the whole water gets turbulent because of it. The wind just blows it all away. God's anger, they have every reason to hate what's going on in their political system, in their civic system, in their towns and in their villages. Absolute sickness. Their religious system's broke, vacant of any worth. They have every reason to be angry and want something to happen. And then John says, this is the Messiah. And they come marching in going, are you really the Messiah? Really? And they're in, in that attitude, they just miss all of it. The answer to these questions, by the way, they did not go to see John in the wilderness to see a reed shaken in the wilderness. They did not go out there to see a guy in fancy clothes. right? They didn't go out there to see a military leader. They went out there to see a guy who was preaching God's word. So they did go out to see a man of God, a legit, pure, all-in service to a living God, and they walked out to the wilderness where, you know, there's the locust cantina and there's, you know, a honeydew bar on the, you know, corner. So not good food. Probably had to overpay for that stuff, just like at the fair. But even though he's in jail, that's not heaven's measure of John the Baptist's ministry. So Jesus goes on to correct them in this. Even though John the Baptist is in jail, he did everything God asked him to do. So Jesus elevates John and in verse 27 this is he of whom it is written behold I will send my messenger before your face Panim, I love that word who will prepare your way before you Malachi 3 1 last book of the Old Testament for I say to you among those born of the women there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him John's the only prophet that was prophesied to come think of that that elevates him up there. Wow. The only one who can say, hey, he, I was prophesied about, but he never said that. John completes his calling without arguing, without quibbling, without, con, 
faltering. He doesn't fall into sin at some point. He doesn't screw up in any big way. That alone distinguishes him from nearly every Old Testament character we have. There's no big failing in John the Baptist's life. So of all the prophets, he did his job. He didn't ask for a, 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 a fleece to be wet in the, you know, he didn't, he didn't test God in that. He didn't doubt it. He didn't say, who am I to do this sorts of thing? He just bowed before the calling that God gave him and did it. Making him even greater than Moses in that regard. Think of that. So Jesus is not just saying, he's not just exaggerating. He who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John becomes an interesting statement because his praise of John is actually pretty truthful and notable. But then to say the people in the kingdom of heaven are actually greater than him, John dies before the veil is torn in the temple. And every single person in this room has access to go talk to God through prayer anytime you want because the veil was torn. John didn't have that. That means John's access to God, total submission and obedience, is still not as valuable as what you have, which is the ability to go to God without anything in the way. Amazing. So Jesus teaches this elevation of John and praises him, and everyone in the church then has this opportunity to go directly to God, frankly, to read the scriptures with clarity and understanding, to worship fully and have, a have God respond to your individual worship instead of corporate temple worship. And frankly, you can fellowship openly with other believers in a holy priesthood. John didn't have any of those things, yet he obeyed God in total faithfulness. Cool guy? Not as cool as you when it comes to the spiritual ranking of things. Verse 29, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So Luke's showing us that not everybody's hearing it. Not everybody gets it. Those that listen to John easily grasp Jesus. The word justified there implies that they made sense of or made right of God being in Jesus Christ. Those that followed John, that really followed John, they were easily able to grasp Jesus and follow Jesus. They got it. Those that rejected John, rejected Jesus. Same today. It's the same situation today. It never changes. When we share the sovereignty of Jesus, we either get it or we don't, and that's what it is. That's how it works. Verse 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation and what are they like they're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another saying we played the flute for you and you did not dance we mourned to you and you did not weep for john the baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon and the son of man comes eating and drinking and you say look a glutton and a winebiber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is justified by all her children in the generation. Same justified is up in verse 29. Wisdom is justified, made sense of, made to come back to balance by all her children in this generation. Those who are those there that are alive, that are still unsure or waffling about Jesus, they have a negative reaction to Jesus. But, and then you get this thing with kids in the marketplace. This is a really like an interesting image. I think the best way you can sum this passage up is that you just can't win with some people, right? And so, and that's what Jesus is talking about. You know, John the Baptist was an aesthetic or an, uh, an uh, 
and he went out and he didn't eat things and he reserved, he fasted from everything. I go out and do the opposite. And with him, you call him a demon possessed. And with me, you say I'm an alcoholic. Like we just can't win with you people because you're not willing to see holiness. You're not willing to see just a right heart. And this also says there are going to be some Christians that are called to doing what John did. And there might be some Christians called to be more like Jesus is. In other words, we're called by God to be different people and to do some different things in the kingdom. So this idea of not winning. The problem with John the Baptist's disciples and even the Pharisees and some of these skeptics is that they always, they see things that are good, like a healing, but they got a critical word about it. They can't just say, wow, cool healing. They can't just accept that. So, and I think the same thing's true when it comes to church. You'll have people that say, well, that church is just doing too much show, or it's just too churchy, and it's too liturgical. It's too this, it's too that. But then you go to simpler churches, and well, that's not enough church. They're too simple. They're too basic. But they're looking for all the wrong things, just like John the Baptist's disciples. And because of that, they can't actually see what's going on. I like Acts 2.42. They read the word together. They prayed together. They ate together. That's my favorite part. They worshiped the Lord together. Really simple. That's what has to happen. So when you go into a church, that's what you're gauging. Do these people do that thing? And can this be a family I partake with? And, you know, at, at that level, the size isn't the relevant part of it. The, the structure around it isn't the relevant part, part of it. The tapestries on the wall are not the relevant part of it. Which songs get sung for worship, as long as they're inspired by the Bible and in agreement with the Bible, that's not the form that gets used, the instruments that get used. Um, we had, and I can't get over this because I frankly was just fascinated, but when we went up to the worship festival, there was that guy there again with his protest sign standing out in front. And what struck me is like the very thing that Pharaoh got in trouble for, stopping God's people from going out to worship, this guy was doing it, but he was doing it with such a spirit of indignation and self-righteousness. And that he was actually trying to discourage people from going out to praise the Lord, yet he was absolutely blind to his own hypocrisy. And, and Pharisees are doing the same thing. Human criticism is a plague because you're always right and everybody else is always wrong. It's a never-ending procession of lukewarm justification of your own behavior. Usually from people that just haven't experienced family and love. Where you have grace on people because we're, none of us are perfect. So those building the kingdom of God or a church, we point people to Jesus. We have to be able to dismiss the critics. Hey, thanks for your opinion. And by the way, that's part of what gets the Pharisees so angry with Jesus. Because they'll be just saying, but we have a point. You're eating with people and they're unclean. And that, there's a point to that. Like, don't hang around with a bunch of sinners. You're going to become a sinner if you do it. Like, that's a rational point. The problem is that they're missing what Jesus is doing there. Right? You're a demon. You're a winebiber. They just don't, they're not a demon or a winebiber. They just don't bow to you. And that's the difference. You're not in control anymore. And for Pharisees, that drives them nuts because you don't bow to them, you bow to Jesus. And that simply drives people crazy sometimes. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, they mean that as an insult. But today what's funny is we're like, he's a friend of sinners. That's a compliment amongst the church. They're actually speaking truth or things that we actually celebrate but they're doing it with a hard heart, Jesus turns it into an, a badge of honor. Fasting, feasting, 
Serving God doesn't require anyone else's approval. It requires the approval of God and consistency with the word of God. And you should be within a community of people where your, your thinking about that sort of thing can be tempered with a, the reaction of other believers. But when these outsiders come in and start questioning Jesus Christ in the middle of his ministry, where that very hour he was doing all sorts of things that demonstrated his power, it's an absolute waste of time. And Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time on these people. But wisdom is justified, he said. Dekeiayo uh, is to render something righteous, to show something to be just or innocent. Truth is truth and wisdom is wisdom. What justifies us? that we're, we're doing what the Bible says. We're consistent with the word. That's what justifies our behavior. Well, who do you think you are? How do you do that? I don't think I'm anybody. In fact, I think I'm a sinner saved by grace. My identity is in Jesus Christ. The only problem is I really don't care what you think about me. I'm going to serve my king. And that, that's absolutely difficult. I'm going to give you just a few pieces of this. Romans 3, 4, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and you may be overcome when you are judged. Like, we get instruction on all this later in the epistles. There's no need for you to externally justify your behavior to someone who's not in fellowship and following Jesus Christ. Well, I can do whatever I want to do. No, we don't do that. We don't sin so that grace can abound. We try to live holy. The truth is not affected by human opinion, but it is very much affected by God's opinion. The word of God being the definitive part of our life. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Even if you look deep and you're like, man, I've been living according to the law. I've been living righteously. I actually can't think of a sin I've committed. That opinion of yourself does not justify you. What justifies you is the word of God that God deems that you're there. So you keep living for purity and you keep living for holiness even to the point where you think you're doing everything right, but you never come to the arrogant point that that alone justifies your life, ever. The same folks that disobeyed John the Baptist and stayed with him now reject the call of Jesus. The same elites that criticized John the Baptist are now criticizing Jesus. The same people that disregard the teachings and the same people that disregard Jesus are there today. And they exist today. It's the same attitude. Not one of those people think that they are humbled to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. And it says all of her children, which children generally defer to their parents, we defer to God's wisdom. We're going to do it God's way. We're not really concerned about what the culture says. We love the people in that culture but we're not interested in their opinion about how to live our lives. We'll stick to the word of God on that. Thank you very much. Isaiah 43, 9. Let them bring out of their um, witnesses that they might be justified or let them hear and say it is the truth. At the end of the day, we're going to decide what's true based on what God's, God says and we, we're willing to put it into a courtroom and figure that out. Every time we hear the phrase bear witness to what is true, in bearing witness to what is true, we are part of the process of justifying Jesus to other people. So we get this word justified in this passage. It's an interesting word. Except both Jesus, except John, they're not in competition with another. They're both justified by God, even though they live their lives very differently. And I think that's the best I can do to make sense of this passage. 
John lived this way. Jesus lived this way. They're both justified by their actions because they both were doing what God told them to do, even though the actions are very, very different. Looking at the resulting action, both John and Jesus pointed people to repentance, baptism, and holiness. That's the consistent thing. How are you going to do that in your life? How are you going to connect with people that need to hear that in your life? That's it. Figure that out. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat, eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. So clearly not all the Pharisees are rejected. One of them says, I would like you to... So that's kind of a, hey, I'd like to know more about what you have to say. But notice that this Pharisee's still got an agenda when we get into this story. But he invites Jesus to come over and eat. I want to hear more about your gospel. I'd, I'd really like to understand more about it. But sometimes that, that faux friendship is actually a trap that they're trying to set. So this guy's name is Simon, verse 40. Simon invites Jesus to come over. And they're like, all right, well, Mr. Weinbiber, unclean person, why don't you come eat at our house and tell us how it is? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. Again, here's another person who's mourning, who's hurt, who's suffering. And wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Again, it's in the heart. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If she's that big of a sinner, why is she in a Pharisee's house? Why'd Simon let her in? Because he's setting a trap for Jesus. He wants to see how Jesus will react. If he's really a prophet, he'll know that there's sin in this person's heart. He'll kick her. Jesus will kick her out as an unclean person. But the Pharisee's happy to let uncleanness come into his life out of his self-righteousness because he's immune to the rules of everybody else. Doesn't even play by his own rules. So... One story, they're getting accused of eating with sinners, and now we have a Pharisee allowing a sinner into his house doing the very same thing he was accusing other people of doing. Like, total hypocrisy. So the woman, Luke can't confirm who, so he doesn't say the name. Some people believe it's Mary of Bethany. Some people believe it's Mary Magdalene. There's other stories that are clearly not this story where Jesus gets his feet anointed with oil. Um, so this seems to be something that has happened on multiple occasions. People do this to Jesus. They recognize Jesus. What's amazing is you got the non-believer inviting Jesus over for dinner. You've got the one who believes just anointing his feet with oil, which is what they should be doing. So she has a public reputation. It says, who was a sinner? She has a public reputation. People know that she's a sinner. The alabaster flask, we talked about this in other gospels, extremely expensive, really rare one piece of glass and to open the bottle you have to break the top off there's no cap on it so these are women would wear them around their neck they were they were extremely precious to the families they would get handed down from mother to daughter either way if she has an alabaster flask she's a sinning woman that has some money about her and in the first century that narrows you down to a couple different professions but you can, you can put that where you will. The Bible doesn't say what her profession was. But we know she's a sinner. We know she has enough money to have an alabaster flask around her neck. She's weeping. She knows what she's done wrong. And she knows that this Jesus loves her. And Luke saves this reaction to Jesus. He really goes out of his way to say she was weeping. She began to wash with her tears. 
there is an outpouring of gratefulness from this woman. And she's come in heavy with guilt. And the only thing you can do in the face of all that guilt is to just weep. Blessed are those that mourn, that are poor of spirit. They've humbled themselves. Desiring to love God, she knows all of her shortfalls and all of her failures. How can I possibly love a God when I've done all these horrible things? So we think of what we've done as a failure to God, and that list can get pretty long for some people. Man, I've failed God in so many ways, i got nothing left for Him. When we think of what God has done for us, we become so aware of the imbalance. It's so out of whack. I'm such a failure at being holy, and He's so good and, and eternal in His holiness. And you look at that, and honestly, what a great meditation to just be sorry to just spend some time being broken before God. I'm so wrong, God. Help me. Heal me. I'm beyond anything else other than just tears. And I love the song today. Like, all I've got left is a hallelujah. That's all I can produce out of what I have done and who I am. And this brings her to the point, they would sit at a table usually on kind of mats on the floor and so the feet, usually you anoint somebody on the head, but the head was probably towards the table and the feet are away from the table. So she's probably getting at the only part of his body she can have access to and getting, getting even close. So she washes her feet with her tears. Complete humility here. Luke paints a vivid image of what's going on. The hair of, the, the hair of her head. Here's the other piece. Where was women's hair in the first century usually in public places? It's covered. The fact that she even has her hair out is just an act of just, she really doesn't care what people think. 1 Corinthians 11, 15, but a woman has long hair. It's a glory to her. She's taking the thing that is her flesh human glory and she's using it to wash feet, which have like cankers and blisters and dirt baked into them, right? You're walking around in sandals. They get pretty nasty. She lets her hair out which is immodest, she uses her glory and she puts her glory at the service of the king. Man, this is... And then she kisses his feet. That wasn't just to get some of the, you know, the, the flavor on her. It's a sign of submission, fealty, respect, total service beyond the norm. This woman has a great parallel to the centurion. Right? Centurion, total faith, absolute faith. No record of any wavering on that person. And we get this image of her total submission. Not, a, not even a hesitation to submit before her king. And Luke's trying to show us which of these paths God's called us to. Total submission. Total faith. Not blindly, but because you've seen everything. You've heard everything. You've witnessed a better way to live. So she anoints them. She kisses them and anoints them. This is more than just a pedicure, right? You go in for one of those. They don't kiss your feet. She kisses and anoints. The, uh, the anointing of thing is a connotation of kingship and a spiritual covering of prayer and blessing. And he spoke to himself. The fact that Jesus is reading his mind should get his attention, right? That's a, that's a deified behavior. So the Simon speaking to himself, Jesus picks up on it. And also, as this is in Luke, it is likely this Pharisee conveyed um, this story after resurrection. So Luke is a historian. It's likely that Simon told Luke this story. So he knows what was going on in his head. Nobody else in the room does. 
Does it make sense? So she conducts worship to Jesus in action. Pharisee conducts criticism in his head and in action. In all likelihood, this caused a bit of a scene in this room. And everybody's paying attention. Folks would likely be speechless, verse 39. Right? What are we going to do? There's probably this pausing. You got this woman just groveling at his feet and the anointing and you can smell the aroma. And everybody in the dining room is just kind of like gone quiet. Like, oh my goodness. Somebody's going to speak up and it's not me. It's either going to be Simon or Jesus. Simon, as the host, would likely send this person packing. Get out of here. Shoo, shoo, shoo. But even Simon says nothing because he's waiting to see what Jesus will do. And Jesus answered and he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. While she's working the feet, Simon, I got something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debts. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Another word for justified. You've made sense of this situation. And boy, as we read Luke, let's make sense of this. By context, the woman and the Pharisee both had a debt. He just called the Pharisee a debtor. <laughs> you, you know, Pharisees claimed that they were, self, they were perfect before the law. That's what Paul claimed. I was perfect under the law. So he just called the Pharisee a debtor. And he's saying the woman and the Pharisee are both in debt. The Pharisees bragged that they were justified under the law. No debt. They're perfect. Look at Hebrews 10. Here's the story. Beauty of, the beauty of the story is he abstracts these things so that the Pharisee can see the truth. This is the point of a parable. This is what Nathan did with David. Hey, imagine somebody who stole somebody's sheep. What would you? And David's like, that person, they should be killed. You know, that person's you. See, now that it's somebody else, it's easy to see the, the speck in their eye. And he does that. He abstracts at one level. And it's not very complex as a parable. Imagine there's a creditor with debt. They both owe a debt. And somebody's been... The simplicity of this is that the more you're forgiven, the more thankful you are. And that's the kingdom of God. That's the blessing. You don't see what God's forgiven you of. There's no blessing in that. And it doesn't mean you're not saved. It, it just means that there is a blessing to be a a sinner that recognizes what you've been forgiven of and you actually viscerally feel what you've been forgiven of. You know the hate, anger, depression, jealousy, envy. You know those things that were in your heart that simply aren't there anymore. You can feel the difference. And there's a blessing in that. The Pharisee thinks he's perfect. He totally misses the point that he's been forgiven. He's just, it just wasn't that big of a deal. You know, it's one thing you go out to eat at McDonald's and somebody says, I'll pick that up for you. It's another thing if you go out to eat to, uh, what's the Brazilian place? Boca de Chao, and somebody says, I'll pick up the tab for you. That's a different gift. Which one's more grateful? Which one's more likely to be desperate to pick up the tab next time? Let me do something for you. That natural reaction. Jesus has to identify where the Pharisee has fallen short and missed the mark. If the Pharisee thinks he's perfect, Jesus actually has to show him where he's imperfect. He doesn't have to show this woman that. He doesn't have to demonstrate that. In, in other words, God, to actively go after people that think they're good enough, he has, he has to show them 
He has to go after them and pursue that lost sheep. But people that come to him willingly and follow willingly, he doesn't have to go out of his way as much for. So he's going to, in the next verses, model for the Pharisee the fact that he's a debtor too. Because the Pharisee's probably not thinking he's a debtor. But Jesus is going to point out, here's where you're a debtor. You sinned too. Verse 44, then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Everybody sees the woman. She's the center of attention right now. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in to the point where it's kind of distracting to everybody. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, let's not excuse the sin, a major problem right now in America. Her sins are many, but they're forgiven. And she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So Jesus systematically shows him where he has broken the laws of hospitality, and most importantly, the anointing. Imagine that the pause would set in after Jesus says this. The same loves little. She does honor, welcome, and show hospitality and fealty to Jesus. She does all three of those things. The feet washing is a basic practice, lowest level of hospitality. In a world of sandals, like we have the world of shoes, so we put a doormat by the door where you can wipe your feet. In this world, there's they, no, there's no doormat. There's a little bowl of water. Help yourself. Clean your feet before you walk into the house. That's sandal culture. This guy doesn't even offer the water. Basic hospitality, not even there. What a, what a jerk. But Jesus isn't thinking he's a jerk. He's thinking he's a sinner too. He's got a debt. Next debt. Feet washing was for everybody. Basic hospitality. Kissing was only for your friends and family. You'd walk up and even dudes were like, smooch, smooch, either cheek. You still see this in the Middle East today. It's part of the culture. We kind of do hug. And if you're Christians and you're Calvary, we do like man hugs, right? And we do long embrace hugs. But that friendly greeting was for people that you were welcoming into your house because you were happy you were there. This Pharisee didn't offer that to Jesus because he wasn't happy he was there. He was setting a trap for Jesus. There wasn't hospitality. There wasn't that spirit of love. And then the anointing. Okay, this would be uncommon. You're not supposed to anoint everyone who comes into your home. You anoint kings. You anoint God's chosen one. You anoint the Messiah and the Christ. Part of the Simon's problem was he didn't see Jesus as the Christ. He didn't accept Jesus' role in his life. And this is still the problem with people that are going to heaven or hell. Do you accept Jesus as your Savior or not? It's not just that you offer Jesus some water for his feet and that you give him a friendly kiss when he's around. Oh, I'm okay. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Yeah. No, it's, is he your king? Is he your Savior? Jesus' due regard is appropriate as Lord. He should have been anointed when he walked into the house if Simon knew who he was. So the sacrifice, the oil, the image of giving God our lives, Jesus is laying an accusation on Simon that he too is a debtor. He didn't show hospitality, breaking the laws of cultural indiscretions. He didn't kiss, breaking the laws of friendship and familial discretions. And most importantly, he didn't make Jesus his Lord, which was a spiritual indiscretion. Does that make sense? 
Like Simon broke all the things. This woman didn't break any of those things. Her sins are many, but they're not those sins. The only sin that can really get you into hell is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You don't recognize Jesus as God. That's it. And that's the one Simon's guilty of. He hasn't anointed Jesus spiritually or physically. And then he said to her, turns to her, and this is what you get when you see Jesus as God. He turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Man, either Simon's learning right now or he's getting infuriated. And I think because we have this story and Luke's a historian, I think he repents. I think we're getting this story from Simon after the crucifixion. Verse 47 is to the room. This is to her. Present infinitive. They are forgiven. That is, they have been, they will be, and they will be forgiven in the future. He uses the present. The Greek there is that he sent her away. <laughs> it, the sins are gone. They've been, it's an intensive pushing away from things is the word that gets used. They're no longer relevant is another way to interpret that word. Your sins aren't even relevant anymore because that belief in Christ as Savior is all it takes. And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it's interesting. It's what Jesus is trying to teach here. And he gracefully sends her on her way. No instruction, no command to stop the adulterous woman. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't even give that command to this woman. He just says, go. Go in peace. And, and, and she's probably could get on with her conversation for the meal because she's probably a little distracting. You know, so just say, hey, go in peace. You're good. Who is this is the question they ask in verse 49. And I love all this because it keeps coming up in the Gospels because this is the question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? What does he mean in your life? That's it. And he forgives sin. There's no other place we can go to forgive sin. There's no other place we can go for healing, the centurion. No other place we can go to conquer death, the widow. There's no other place we can go for a savior, the disciples of John the Baptist. There's no other place we can have our sins forgiven, the Simon the Pharisee's house. These four stories give us all those pieces. And this is the living out of the, the teaching we got in chapter 6. This is what it looks like in real life. Fealty to Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Compassion from Jesus. And instruction and teaching from Jesus. All of it in the Word of God. So, do we repent? Do we baptize? Do we follow and make Him King? How does that happen? How did you approach the church today? Did you approach church humble? Were you ready to wash other people's feet or did you need your feet washed? Are you ready to love other people around you or are you just ready to have receive love from everybody around you? Are you ready to anoint others as spiritually covered because you're praying for them? Think about that. How did you come to church today? What can I get out of it or how can I bless people when I get there? What can I do to be spreading the love of God as I go through my life with the people that, I, that I'm a part of my family in, in the spiritual church. How, did you come out of habit? It's just a routine. You come every week. That's why you're here. Or did you get up this morning and say, how do I serve other people? Did you come judging people? Do you go home from church just judging how ridiculous Sean is? You know, you're just picking on little nitpicky things and, and you got issues with everything. Or did you come 
ready for God to bring justification to you because you need to be judged. I have things I got to work on. Lord, help me work these things out of my life. Help me to continue to flush out all the sin in my life so I can serve you with honor and dignity and grace. Greater than the healings, greater than the leper, greater than the paralytic, the blind people, even greater than reviving the dead, because that's temporary, is the forgiveness of sins because that's eternal and that's what we absolutely need God for. Did you come to church today because you have sins that you're a debtor and you need them forgiven so that you can march forward in the, in the, in the love and the grace of God? Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to change lives. I think that's the point in chapter 7. So this woman comes humble and she leaves forgiven. She comes to serve, not to complain. And she comes, because, and she comes with something to offer God because she loves God. And that's what we do. So Jesus forgives in verse 48. He saves in verse 50. And he gives peace in the latter part of verse 50. That's the, that's the trade. And that's what God gives. So this is my prayer for not just myself, selfishly. I would love those things. But it's my prayer for everybody that I know in my life. Even the weird guy outside the concert. I pray that we can come humbly we can, we can be forgiven of our sins and saved and have peace, not just in eternity, but today. And that we can leave here knowing we're justified and that all of God's children are justified by the wisdom of following the Lord God Almighty. That's what justifies us. And what an amazing place to be. And then suddenly, when you, real, when you feel that justification, when you feel that forgiveness of sins making you just with God again, what an amazing blessing that is on our life, that we're just right with God and we can go forward and do our work and do our days and know God loves us. And he marvels at people with that kind of faith. Chapter 7. Dear Lord, bless us and be with us. And Lord, I pray that covering, that everybody in this room comes before you with a humble heart. And Lord, that we don't come before each other. We, we don't seek the approval of each other. We seek your approval. Lord, I ask you to bless us in that way. Teach us to be molded unto your image and to be more like Christ. Lord, I thank you for these stories. I know they're tough to hear. They're convicting stories. Um, but Lord, help me to be convicted. Help me to never come before you arrogantly or pridefully or with challenges. Lord, help me to come before you humble. And when I do that, Lord, all I want is to celebrate and lift up your name as King and to honor your name in all things. Lord, bring your Holy Spirit to our meal as we eat today. Bring your Holy Spirit to the fellowship. Lord, may we mix in our, our idle speech, Lord, and may, may we, we repair and fill that with just the speech of the Spirit and talking about your word and what you've done and the blessings in our lives. So Lord, help us to be trained unto you today and help us to just bless one another, uh, to come with a spirit of love and patience and understanding, Lord, in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.